Welcome to Anxiety and the Artist, the podcast that explores artist relationship with anxiety, offering insight and inspiration. I'm your host, Allison Chef. My guest today is Drea Brown. Drea is an actor and artivist originally from South Carolina. She graduated from the University of North Carolina School of the Arts and has performed in multiple national tours, regional productions, and off-Broadway. As an advocate for equity, Drea is also a postpartum doula in the making, a community gatherer, storyteller, and facilitator. She is currently the Chief of Staff with the Broadway Advocacy Coalition and Co-Programming Manager for their Artivism Fellowship. She is also a facilitator for the Theater of Change course at the Columbia Law School. Drea is also a proud mama to a brand new beagle puppy. Drea, welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you, Allison. So happy to be here. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Um, Tell us a little, thank you for being here. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your background as a performer and your relationship with anxiety. Amazing. I'm, I'm, ha- I'm happy to do that. I'm having a little anxiety right now as a new uh, puppy mama <laughs> to an 11 week old baby. Um, I am originally from South Carolina. Uh, I started uh, this journey with uh, art very young, around 16. I went to the South Carolina Governor's School for the Arts and Humanities and kind of used art as an escape from home. I wanted to um, find a new arena uh, in life. I wanted to discover what else I was good at. And the small town that I was from really didn't offer much. And so I was always looking for a reason to get out. Um, Not because I didn't love my family or my community, but because it was so small and it felt suffocating at times. And Mm -hmm. so I was not a lover of the arts. I just used it as honestly as an excuse to leave and discover that like truly anybody can be an artist, can be an actor um, for sure, especially with acting. I can only speak for acting and was... Um, under the tutelage of Daniel Murray and Jace Tromsness of just realizing my own potential, that untapped potential, and going for it. Um, Since then, I have been acting uh, pretty regularly, mostly in the downtown regional scene um, with my theater family at Bedlam, doing a couple of tours of St. Joan and... um, Hamlet. I almost said Hamilton, but it's not <laughs> Hamilton. Um, and then my relationship with anxiety, we talked a little bit about it, um, you and I together, but it's something that I've just really been in discovering and that I'm in new community with this year because of the pandemic. And so I like to say that this pandemic was both a blessing and a curse and to hold space for all of the many lives that we've lost because of this um, a terrible, um, by, uh, violent virus and also a whole space for all of the growth and development that has occurred because we've all had to slow down. And in slowing down, I realized that a lot of my digestive issues that I've been having since I was 16, 18 years old are directly linked to my anxiety. My brain is in my stomach my stomach is in my brain, and the the two of them will talk to each other before they talk to me. And I would mm. get these like debilitating stomach aches before a show, or these debilitating stomach aches before an audition. 
And I'd be like, I probably had gluten. I definitely ate gluten because I have celiac. Somebody put gluten in something. And I have a very strange relationship with doctors. I don't trust them. They don't make me feel seen, held, and affirmed. I try to still steer clear from them. And this year I was at a friend's house and they said, Drea, when you get these stomach aches, it looks like somebody turned the lights off in, in your body, like the lights off in your house. And you should probably see somebody about it. So I called up a doctor, said a prayer that this would be differently. And he asked me a series of questions um, that were mostly connected to my personal life. And I thought that was so interesting. Of He was like, you know, what's going on in your personal life? What's going on in your home life? How are you feeling today? And he said, like, are, do you think that you may have anxiety? Do you may think that, like, you, you know, you have issues there? And I said, no, I don't think so. I think that, you know, I just get stomach aches. Maybe I have IBS. And he asked, kept asking questions. And it dawned on me that, like, this, these feelings that I had been putting in a, in a, in a, in a crock pot in a pressure cooker were mm. definitely my anxiety coming out to play. And mm. that I thought the, my behavior was, quote, unquote, common and that everybody experienced uh, this like crippling anxiety that turned into these crippling stomach aches, or I didn't want to like gaslight my experience. And so I thought maybe, you know, I was over exaggerating my pain or my experience. And this doctor for the first time listened to all of that. And he said, you know, I would love to put you on some medication for your anxiety. And Drea, I would really love if you would start seeing a therapist. You have a lot going on in your life. You have a long history of a lot of icky things. And I think it's time for you to see someone. And it was the hmm. first time a doctor had ever seen me as a person, had ever talked to me like I mattered, had ever treated me like I was the expert of my own body on my own experience. I shortly after uh, was connected with a therapist who I love and who was able to source my my uh, stomach aches as a symptom of my anxiety. And, and we started working on this work of how connected they are. And so we started doing this hmm. exercise of the chicken before the egg, like which one comes first? Is it my anxiety or is it the stomach ache? And it was almost always the anxiety first, the pressure first hmm. of being perfect, of hitting the right notes, of making my mark on stage, of hitting the right emotional, um, um, response in this moment that will lead to these stomach aches. And this is something, Allison, that is since I've been acting uh, since 16, 17, 18 years old, that has been common. So I hadn't gone to seek any professional help in 10, 15 years, um, which was really shocking to my doctor and shocking to my therapist. And after explaining to them why I was so hesitant to do so, they were so understanding. And so it's only been this year that I've really been able to be in community with my pain and my trauma in a way that's really served me. I've had a stomach ache. I do this calendar where it says, you know, blank days since incident. And it has been 35 days mm -hmm. since I've had an anxiety stomach ache. And <laughs> because I'm in community with my thoughts better. Yeah. Woohoo. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. Can you, would you be comfortable talking a little bit about why you were so hesitant to go to doctors in the first place? Um, I come from a family of women who have had 
medical issues ranging from ovarian cancer to ALS to problems with childbirth. And I watched them in my youth have to advocate for themselves in doctor's offices. And it was heartbreaking of the way I would see doctors, primarily white doctors, treat my mother, my sister, my grandmother, my aunt, my friends. Um, They were never believed to be the experts of their own bodies, their own experiences, or their own pain. They were never prescribed any medication. They were always treated as if they had a history of addiction or, or, or substance abuse, which we do not, um, mm-hmm. which is no matter, um, you know, pain management is real and it should be provided to anybody who needs it. And I watched these doctors belittle my mom. I watched them after my sister gave birth. Um, she had these like debilitating headaches where she couldn't see and she knew something was wrong with her. And they kept saying Mm -hmm. to her, you know, you just had a baby. You really need to just really relax, really take a couple of deep (laughs) breaths. Um, This is an experience of all women. Um, What you're going through right now is not abnormal. It sounds like you just want pain medication. And this is coming from a woman who has been healthy her entire life, has this was her fifth fourth child at the time, um, who is a lactation consultant (laughs) and a doula who (laughs) especially knows her body. And there was one day where I walked in and I saw my sister breastfeeding my nephew, but she just wasn't there. And I called my mom and I said, Mm -hmm. something is wrong with summer. Like, and my mom was like, I, we, we are well aware of that. We have been to see many doctors. They keep prescribing her, you know, hospital grade ibuprofen. And so I remember going to the hospital with my mom and my mom said, and I'll never forget, I would like you to notate in my daughter's chart that you are refusing to do a CAT scan. I would like you to notate in her chart of your um, terrible bedside manner. Like my mom just went off and they said, fine, (laughs) fine. The insurance isn't going to cover all of this CAT scan, but if you want that to happen, if it's going to make you feel better, let's do it. And it turns out that my sister had a tumor (laughs) on the front lobe of her brain that was increasing in size and that she needed to be uh, put under immediately and have an emergency uh, surgery. We didn't receive an apology. They were never contacted for malpractice. Um, We just let it go. And I just watched that happen over and over and over again. I watched it happen to me when I would go for my annual. I watched it happen to my friends, my black and brown friends who would go to the doctors with serious issues who would leave with nothing. And quite recently, I went to the doctor's office for chronic pain and the doctor made me feel, I haven't felt like this in so long, so small and so unimportant. And there's a history, if anybody doesn't know, of malpractice with black and brown women, with black and brown people who give birth. Um, Black women Mm. die at three times the rate at white women when giving birth. Um, the, the experiments and the studies that have been done without consent from Henrietta Lacks to the Tuskegee experiments to the syphilis experiments with black people has shown us that we live in a world where the medical system also is complicit 
in violence against our bodies. And I know it firsthand and I've experienced it firsthand and I've watched it since I was a baby until I'm, you know, I'm an, I'm an adult now. I've watched it my entire life of feeling um, small in places mm-hmm. where I'm supposed to feel the most love. And so it took me 15 years to work up enough courage to call a doctor's office and to say, hey, I need help. I'm not able to use the bathroom for days. Something is wrong with my body. I think I have IBS. I think I have this. I think I have that. Because I felt like I needed to be almost my own doctor. I needed to come in with the research. And that is not everybody's experience. And I don't think a lot of people have enough information about Um, the medical industry and how blatantly racist um, they can be, they are. And, um, and so it's the reason why it took me so long to ask for help, because I was afraid that I would have to be my best advocate, my only advocate to no avail to with, with no help. You know, I walked out of a doctor's appointment with a, with no prescription medication for a severe back injury. And again, no apology, no nothing. And so I think we all get a little bit tired of getting the help that we deserve. And so we just would rather suffer. And yeah, I think it's been time out for suffering in silence with me this year. Um, and so I've been Absolutely. taking the brave steps of being my best advocate in those spaces. Coming up, Drea talks about her work with the Broadway Advocacy Coalition. Tell us about your work with the Broadway Advocacy Coalition. Oh, my family. I am uh, the chief of staff of the Broadway Advocacy Coalition. Um, I started this position in the summer of last year during the uprisings of um, uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Um, And they wanted to come together to talk about how much of the world is mirrored in our industry. And they put an all call out and said, all hands on deck. And I said, nope, I can't do it. I am busy. (laughs) I don't have time for this. And my friend Britton was like, okay, but what, you know, what if you just like sat in on a session? And I was like, nope, you can't make me. I don't want to. I'm just going to participate as a um, as a, as a guest, as a spectator. And then he said, Rob really needs an assistant. And I love Allison admin work. I get off on it. I think it's so cool. And I was like, okay, I'll be Rob's assistant. That sounds cute. Rob is so cute. I love it. Let's do it. And then all of a sudden, I'm like producing the event (laughs) and I have an at BWA Advocacy Coalition email and I'm like, what is happening? And then they're like, you're so amazing. And I've fallen in love with them. And, you know, it's one of the first jobs. And I say this all the time that I've had where I feel like I can bring my full self to the work and I have to show up as anything other than myself. I don't have to code switch. I don't have to engage in respectability politics. I don't have to be the, you know, affable black person. I can just be Drea. 
And that is so rare, both in this industry and in the workplace environments. Um, that is not the experience that I've ever had in my life. And I've had many a job. Um, and so I said, you know, working with these people, seeing these people every day brings me so much joy. And I knew that, that it was where I belonged because I felt such a such pleasure with waking up and going to work every day, which I don't think is everybody's experience. Like you have to work to make ends meet, but it's not necessarily because you enjoy the work you do, but I am enjoying, mm-hmm. I'm finding pleasure in logging in every morning and dreaming about a new world for us all to return to because we can't return what was normal, what is normal anymore. And I don't think I want to go back to anything that was before this pandemic happened anyway. And so I'm working amongst dreamers, the movers and the shakers and um, advocates and artists and students and lawyers and directly affected leaders and using the skills that I have with storytelling along with the leadership and experiences of those who are most directly affected by these issues to change the world. That's putting it broadly, but to change all of these broken systems or to be a part of changing these broken systems. Um, And so I've been working with them since June. We've been doing, pushing out all of our programming, our forums, our day of healing, our um, coalition building, Um, we have this artivism fellowship that I am the co-program manager with my, uh, uh, partner in change, Nia Akila Robinson. And this fellowship was created to support artists, activists, combine that together. You get an artivist uh, who are using their tools Uh to have impact on the world around them. And so we're providing financial support, mentorship, networking opportunities, education workshops, and this will all culminate in an in project that will outlast the fellowship. Um, we create impact projects, projects that are vehicles of change, projects that can be done for people to change systems. And these 10 women were selected. It's a group of Black um, women, um, uh, cisgendered and trans women coming together on Mondays to fellowship, to be in community with each other, and to love on each other in a world that hasn't really loved us um, uh, this past year or, or, or these past years, um, to, uh, create narrative, um, based pieces on issues relating to systemic racism and or criminal justice reform. So that's what I'm really focused on right now. Um, and then there's of course the facilitation that I'm doing with the theater of change with Columbia law school. And we're working on, um, reimagining justice through abolition, Um, And so we've been hearing a lot of talk this year about defund the police or reform the police. Um, And so we're steering in this abolition-centered, community-centered world um, where publicly dreaming together about how to make it happen with all of the skepticism, holding space for all of the skeptics, holding space for all of the experts and everybody in between to talk and create art that responds um, to these to to the calls for abolition, and so it's been really thrilling of working with Columbia Law School under Susan Sturm and working with BAC with our methodology and creating these lasting col- collaborations and 
creating, you know, meaning, meaningful impact driven pieces for people to see. You had an experience while performing with a touring production that was traumatic and caused some lasting anxiety that you're still dealing with. Um, And it sort of ties into the work that you're doing with BAC. Could you tell us about that experience? Yeah, I was with my theater family, Bedlam, um, performing St. Joan um, at the Folger Theater. Um, And I have been doing this show for almost like a year now and it was like our final stop. And I had the pleasure of working with people from the original cast. And um, I don't know if anyone knows, but Joan, St. Joan has, you know, is, is a real person, but the play is a play. It is a thing of fiction. So let's just be very clear from the, from out the gate here. And I'm a black woman playing a role that is traditionally played by uh, white women. And, um, people did not like that. A lot of people had some problems with bedlam, quote unquote, blackwashing, uh, a historical, uh, narrative and were very vocal about their disdain, uh, of, of my role and disdain with Eric for casting me and, um, we had a really interesting experience where I got a death threat uh, via Instagram. And it was really shocking to me that someone would care so much about, you know, a three hour play featuring four people <laughs> that they would send a death threat right. to me. And they said, you know, like they knew the tour stops, they knew who I was, and like I needed to be careful and all of this stuff. And, you know, the folder responded very quickly. Eric responded very quickly. And this does not happen very often where people take care of the person. They usually take care of their uh, organization first. Um, But, you know, we got these wonderful reviews. And in the comment section, people would say nasty things like, you know, Bedlam is blackwashing Joan. And there are so many other plays that this black girl could be doing. Like, like she could be doing plays about slaves or Harriet Tubman. Or they would say shit like, um, there, it would be, you know, all hell would break loose if a white woman would ca- was cast in August Wilson. But here's a black woman being cast as St. Joan and no one's saying anything about it. And I found like those comments very hurtful, very traumatizing, but also very interesting. Um, Eric immediately was like, here's mm-hmm. the deal. This is in your hands. If you don't want to do this show anymore, we can pack it up. We can go have a beer tonight. We can go home. I will support you. I love you. I'm ready to do that. The Folger gave me full security and something that like I feel like we didn't really think about was like my... Um, the toll that it, 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 it played on me mentally and emotionally of having to have like security walk me back and forth mm-hmm. from my housing to the theater or not being able to like hang out anymore. And granted it was the last week that it ran. And, uh, but even saying that I'm like, no, it's not granted. It was the last week that it ran. Thankfully it was the last week that it ran. So I didn't have to deal with it for a long time. But they stepped up, they got, you know, security, mm-hmm. people were wanded down before they came in. Very traumatic. And I'm on a platform alone every night in the dark with a spotlight. And it was probably some of the most, if not the, the scariest time in my life of sacrificing my, my safety for art. Not because anybody told me that I had to, but I didn't want to be the difficult person who pulled out. 
I didn't want that title. Mm -hmm. I didn't want that to be associated with me. And everybody was taking care of me. And I could have said no, but I didn't. But every night around 8.30, all of the lights went out and Joan is put, you know, on trial. And the way Eric so beautifully directed it was I'm on this platform that's towering over the audience and all of the lights are off except for a spotlight on me. So I can't see anybody in the audience. And I just got this death threat. People are being wanded into a theater to see this three-hour show, and I am panicking. And, you know, some people were like, it was my favorite moment in the show. But what they didn't know was that the emotions, sure, were there before this happened. But they were incredibly amplified because of my fear and not because of Joan's fear. And there's this whole thing that directors are like, use it, use that. And Eric never said that to me. He never was, like, conflating using my real trauma with this character's trauma. But I could see that people were mistaken right. by emotional experience for Joan's pain when it was most definitely Drea's pain. Pain, And, you know, it's not the Folgers' first mm-hmm. experience with, you know, their audiences acting a fool, as my grandma would say, when Black women are cast <laughs> in, in roles. You know, there was some pushback from a young lady who was cast as Cleopatra. You know, and Cleopatra... I mean, I hope people know was not a white woman, you know, and, and so right. was, you know, right. Which was very interesting to me. I understand the pushback or I could understand the pushback for me playing Joan, which doesn't make any sense, but for Cleopatra. And so I think, you know, we finished the run strong and there was a lot of love and a lot of support my way, but I left that process feeling like I had to always protect myself in spaces, whether it's DC or whether it's New York, people act a fool, people can be racist, people can be insensitive, and it is all at the expense of me at the end of the day. I have to go home, I have to take mm-hmm. care of myself and my emotions, and that only leads to more anxiety and more stomach aches and you know, and 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 more right. money that I have to spend on a therapist of unpacking something that happened years ago because I sacrificed my safety for my art. And so I don't do that anymore. I'm very um, intentional about the words I use. I'm very intentional about the roles I go out for. I'm very intentional about asking directors, you know, how does race play a part in this production? We can't pretend that it doesn't. I'm a black woman. And it was a time in my life that I was very afraid and uh, I wasn't sure, you know, it's one of those moments where you're like, how do you recover from this? And I did, um, mm-hmm. but it last, it, it left a very lasting impact, a very nasty scar for sure. For sure. Mm. Yeah. I'm sorry. You had to experience that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, I, and I hope that, that, that in sharing this, that we all work towards some sort of awareness and change. I, I think awareness is a huge part of it. I think a lot of people are so ignorant as to exactly how racism is is prevalent in our industry and how it manifests. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Of course. Yeah. Um, I think it's really important. What has COVID taught you about being an artist? I think one of the biggest lessons that COVID has taught me about being an artist is self-care. 
um, that very often artists are expected to run themselves ragged and that that does not have to be the experience and that hard things can Mm -hmm. be done with joy and tenderness and love. And it's actually incumbent of our industry to take care of us more because we provide so much for the world, for the city, for the state, especially. And yet we are not taken care of. We're not taking care of ourselves and we're not being taken care of. So I think it's taught me to slow down and to be in community more with my body and my breath and my desires and needs. It's taught me to find other things that I love and that I can devote my artistry to. Um, And that doesn't have to mean performing. Mm -hmm. You know, activism, for one thing, is closely... um, closely relies on my art, my skills as a storyteller. Um, babysitting um, relies on my skills as a storyteller. And so not seeing those things as separate, but in community with each other. It's taught me to prioritize mm-hmm. pleasure of finding all of the things that make me smile, especially the things that made me smile as a child. I, and I would encourage people to do this, is to make a list of all of the things you really loved around like the third grade, you know, for me, that was reading. (laughs) I really loved reading. I really enjoyed reading. And then I didn't find that I had time to do it anymore. And in the third grade, I really loved making sun catchers and I really loved um, going to the garden and seeing, uh, being in nature. And all of these things still bring me joy, as much joy as they did for little eight-year-old Drea, but I lost touch with them. And so I've made a point of reading more, of being out in nature more, of showing up for my community more. I loved hanging out with my friends. I love sleepovers. And I will tell you that if you you know, if, if, if you can just get back, tap back into the things that bring you joy, then you can take care of yourself better. And you'll know how, what to demand um, from others that makes space for you, um, that makes you feel bigger and more confident. Because usually I feel very small in spaces because rehearsal processes are so quick and so long and you can't take up too much time because we only have, a, you know, a short amount of time to put this thing up. But that I can ask, you know, can we take a collective breath? Or I really would love to honor the life that was lost today. So being more bold, being more confident of being better to myself for the things that this this, mm-hmm. this time has taught me. And I think most importantly of finding and loving on my community uh, of friends. Um, and we can't do that necessarily virtually, but of sending little things to the people that you love. Um, It's so important of sharing space with the people you love, of telling the people you love, you love them. I think we took for granted before this happened. Of showering people with kisses. (laughs) And we took for granted. um, Absolutely. uh, Yeah. Being better, better people uh, is definitely something that this pandemic has taught me. How to be a better person. One-on-one. (laughs) amazing amazing Drea thank you so much for being here today and for sharing your story I so appreciate it absolutely thank you for having me that's our show for today 
Thanks for listening. And thanks to my guest, Drea Brown. For more information on some of the topics we discussed, including more information on the Broadway Advocacy Coalition, head on over to our website, anxietyandtheartist.com. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and share. We'd also love it if you could leave a rating and a comment in whatever podcast app you're listening to us on. Until next time, be healthy and stay creative. Anxiety in the Artist is produced by Grosta Productions and recorded at Homestead Studios. Music and engineering is by Bosco Chef. This podcast represents the opinions of Allison Chef and her guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.